Um, so, uh, hello. Uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Sarah. I've been part of St. Barnabas Church for about three and a half years now, I think. Um, and uh, I'm currently doing the form discipleship year. We've got other formies here. We've got some. Yeah, there's five of us in total. I think we're all here tonight. Yeah, anyway, formerly known as the, uh, the internship, um, but we thought we'd make it cooler by changing the name. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. Um, uh, it is my absolute privilege today to be uh, continuing on with our sermon series. Uh, we've been talking about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus' Blueprint for Life. And um, uh, the reason why we've been doing that is uh, we've, uh, we've found that um, Many people, uh, Christian and non-Christian, are often quite skeptical of religion, but are intrigued by Jesus. Um, so it makes sense that we have a little look at some of the stuff he has to say. Um, I think it is relevant to literally everyone, whether you're a believer or not. Um, if you're not a believer, you can't deny that Jesus is inarguably um, the most influential human being to have ever walked the planet. Um, and obviously, if you're a believer, it's pretty good to know what he said, because you're meant to be following him. So awkward if you don't know what he says. Um, in previous weeks, we've read, um, we read the Beatitudes, so blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> um, we learned that we're salty. <laughs> um, and then, I, don't, I couldn't make a joke out of this one, but Chris shared um, about uh, Jesus fulfilling the law rather than scrapping it. Um, sadly, I missed it. Um, sorry, I was at a wedding. Um, but today is the first part of our series where we get to kind of look a bit more in depth at some of the more like the nitty gritty everyday stuff um, in Jesus's blueprint for life. Um, some people, uh, when they think of Jesus, I don't know uh, what thoughts co are conjured up in your mind when you think of Jesus. A lot of people think of him as this really nice guy that lived in first century Palestine and he kind of walked around and said some really nice fluffy things. Um, he made us all feel better about ourselves, um, and then he performed some cool party tricks, water into wine, let's bring him to a party. Um, but I think as the sermon series is starting to reveal, um, Jesus is actually quite a hardcore guy, <laughs> and he wasn't actually all that fluffy at all. Um, so without further ado, will you turn with me please to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. We've got some church Bibles scattered around, and if we need some more, the hosting team can assist. There's some at the back there as well. So Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. Are we there? Someone's taking my photo. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. We're good so far. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Now, just a pause there. Raka was an Aramaic word, and it meant empty head. So apparently that was like a common derogatory name that people would call each other. So anyone who, uh, oh, you fool, as They've, oh no, if we go, can we go back? One. 
Yeah, there we go. It is in. Okay, cool. Just checking. I've got the same translation. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, who was the um, the Jewish uh, court at the time. Um, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. I told you Jesus wasn't fluffy. Um, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid every last penny. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Have you ever had a time in your life where you've thought something was quite challenging, and then someone came along and made it worse? <laughs> or maybe you yourself made it worse for yourself? This is the first passage of many that we're going to be getting into in this series, where Jesus starts by saying, you've heard it said, and then he starts with some Old Testament scripture, and then he makes it harder. <laughs> Did you notice that? We heard last week about how Jesus um, is not scrapping the law, he's fulfilling it, right? Well, now it seems that in addition to fulfilling it, he's also raising the standard. You've noticed that Jesus says, yes, the law says don't murder, fine, well done. You haven't murdered anyone. But you shouldn't even get angry with your brother. What Jesus is doing here is he's intensifying the law by internalizing it. He's intensifying the law by internalizing it. The rabbinic tradition at the time um, would often focus on uh, when they were uh, going through the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, um, and, the, and particularly the, the law, the Torah, um, they would focus on the external works, right, that were part of that. And what Jesus is doing is he's raising the standard of righteousness by relocating that internally. So he's causing us to reassess not just what we're doing, but also why we're doing it. Have you ever noticed that, um, my, maybe in yourself or uh, someone you know, that whenever a moral line is crossed, they, you almost always use the phrase, well, at least I didn't do fill in the blank. Yes, I've done X, but hey, it wasn't Y or Z. Sure, I might have exaggerated on my CV, but you know, I didn't, I didn't commit like full-on fraud like that guy in suits. <laughs> it's in the first episode, man. <laughs> it's not a spoiler. <laughs> but Jesus seems to be completely flattening this out. He's relocating the law into the heart, but by doing so, he seems to be making it impossible to fulfill. Great, you're not a murderer, well done but you're still a sinner. If you've ever been angry with someone, if you've ever called them a name, or if you praise God with your lips while thinking bad thoughts about them, you're liable to judgment just as murderers are. A bit harsh, don't you think, Jesus? I wonder how many churches today would be all right with Jesus coming to preach in their services. You've heard, that you said, you've heard it said that you can't murder anyone, so let's raise the standard. Let's make it harder for people to obtain righteousness. Now, is that really fair? Like, I think I'm quite a reasonable person. 
I haven't taken anyone's life. That's quite extreme. Um, but I think a bit of anger from time to time is more or less acceptable. I mean, if we really think about it, murder is actually quite a big deal. Um, for most of us, it's quite an abstract concept. It's almost got a mythical quality to it because um, for, um, I'm going to assume that most people in this room haven't actually encountered it. Um, maybe there is an exception or two, but I, you, you know, most of us, our only um, encounter with the concept of murder is, is usually with, um, in, in books and TV shows and movies and maybe video games. Um, or like, you know, when you're a kid, you play that game, Wink Murder, and like, you wink and then they have to die dramatically. Like, for us, it's, quite, it's almost entertaining. It's, it's quite a removed abstract thing, so we don't really get the seriousness of it. Um, I don't know if anyone likes Agatha Christie, you know, good old whodunits. Um, but in reality, you know, murder, it's a very big deal. There are many countries in the world that still carry the death penalty for it. Um, for people who've been convicted of murder. Um, in this uh, country, a, a person convicted of murder will serve anywhere from 11 years to life in prison. If it's a first offence, the average sentence is 16 years. Um, now, I've actually, I've actually met a few people convicted of murder. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, myself and a few people who are here, um, we had the privilege of actually going into a maximum security prison um, uh, with an ecumenical ministry team, and we ran a week-long course that's, um, I want to say, similar to Alpha, but more intense. <laughs> Joe's nodding. <laughs> um, and it's sort of specifically designed for prisoners. And it's a multi, it's an interdenominational uh, ministry group called Kairos. Um, talk to Matt at the end if you want to learn more. Um, but after, after five days of this course, um, every single one of the men who participated in this um, course got up during uh, the open mic session that we had for them, and they all publicly declared some kind of faith or belief in God by the end of it. Um, honestly, I wish you could have felt the energy in that room. <laughs> I literally cried the whole way through. <laughs> um, in just five days, these guys were completely different. For many of them, this was the first time they'd ever been told that God wants to be their friend. Many of them prayed for the first time. Um, one was actually starting to give people, us on the team, prophetic words at the end of it, and like they were spot on. Um, another one is stepping out into some pretty serious prayer and intercession um, against the stronghold of, of drugs and addiction in the prison system. Um, and he's also feeling God's call on his life to pray and intercede for those of us Christians on the outside who are apparently lukewarm. <laughs> and you should see them worship, <laughs> like raising their hands in the air, shouting Jesus' name. These are men who are radically changed because they've encountered God's love. I remember um, on the last day, and we were, we were singing, and, um, and, uh, and Matt was leading worship, and the guy standing next to me, he was young, I reckon like 19, 20, and he, he couldn't sing, he, was, he couldn't sing to save his life, but he was just shouting the words. And then Matt went up an octave to make it all kind of more intense, and so he's just shouting louder, and you could just like, you could just see that joy and that freedom, you know? And like, this was a guy who came in with his shoulders hunched, and he was so self-conscious um, and, and, and afraid, like, it, you know, he came in not knowing what to expect, and, the, and by the end of it, he's just completely released in his spirit to just praise the Lord and not care what anyone uh, thought of him. And I've said this to a few people uh, individually, but I'll say it publicly here, that worshipping Jesus alongside murderers and hardened criminals is the most aligned with heaven I've ever felt in my life. Praising his name, singing his love, while standing next to people who've experienced his goodness for the first time is 
has been completely life-changing. I sort of came out of that being like, okay, cool, now I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, no biggie. Um, but I think one of the reasons why that week was so powerful is because these guys really understood the seriousness of the cross. Like, they know that they're sinners. They know that they need a savior. And I think the trouble with us is that we, we, we don't know. We don't get the seriousness of the cross. We don't get it. We, we don't realize how much we need Jesus. Um, during one of the breaks um, in, of one of the sessions, um, during my time there, um, I met this one guy who had, um, he'd done the course four years ago, so he wasn't one of the participants that year, um, but he'd come along because he wanted to pray over his friends while they were participating. Um, and uh, I'm not allowed to mention names, so I'm gonna call him Eddie. Um, uh, in a nutshell, Eddie was the only guy in his year that didn't commit his life to Christ that, that, that year, four years ago, um, and that was because he was worried that he was being manipulated, because uh, for those of you who know about it, we send, like, I think it's 9,000 cookies, into, like homemade cookies into the prison, um, and he felt that the, the cookies were a bit manipulative, so he, 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 he was a bit kind of suspicious of it all. He completed the course, but he didn't give his life to Christ. Um, but a few weeks after he, got, um, after he completed the course, he got diagnosed with cancer, um, and had to undergo some pretty serious treatment. Now, if you think cancer's awful, try having cancer in a maximum security prison. Um, after many uh, weeks of being in very serious pain from the treatment and, and vomiting um, a lot because of the treatment, um, he uh, went into his friend's cell and declared that he wanted to try prayer because he had nothing left to lose. Um, his friend uh, laughed at him and mocked him for it, and he just said, you know, I'm just gonna try. So he got on his knees inside his friend's cell, um, and, uh, and he cried out to God, and he said, God, if you're there, please kill me so that I won't be in this pain, or heal me, and then I'll live for you. He went back to the medical wing for more treatment, and um, they had to do some routine tests, um, and the problem was they, they couldn't find any cancer in his body. <laughs> it's now been four years, and he's completely cancer-free. This guy did not trust random strangers who came in with free cookies, which is kind of fair enough. Um, but he couldn't argue with a miracle, right? He's now written four worship songs. Um, one of them's out of Philippians, um, another one's out of Isaiah, another one out of the Psalms. And let me tell you, I got to pray with this guy and he's so intense. <laughs> he is completely on fire for Jesus and you should see him just weeping as he's praying that his friends will give, give their lives to Jesus by the end of the course and of course they did. Um, but I've realized coming out of it that people in maximum security prisons, you know, remember they've done some of the worst crimes imaginable in this country. Um, but essentially that makes them a lot more receptive to the gospel because they know their condition, right? What about us? Do we really know our condition? In many ways, I'm starting to realize that those of us on the outside are actually in more danger of becoming spiritually flat or apathetic. We're less receptive to the gospel because we don't think that we need a savior. That guy, Eddie, He's a hardened criminal, he's serving a lifetime sentence, he's never gonna get out. But he is a lot more free than most of the people walking up and down Mill Road right now.
We struggle to understand the power of the gospel because we do not understand the seriousness of our condition. So, why does Jesus say that those of us who get angry, which I think is all of us, let's be fair, we're gonna receive the same judgment, well, we're gonna receive judgment just like those who've committed murder. I think what he's saying here is that we need grace just as much as they do. The difference is that they know it, we don't. He's showing us the seriousness of our condition and highlighting the fundamental distinction between us and him. The law needs fulfillment, but only he can do it. And that is why he went to the cross. You can't argue that this world is messed up. (laughs) It needs a savior. Just turn on the news. But the thing is, so do I, and so do you. You will not understand the grace of God if you don't understand what it cost him. If we don't understand how much we need him, then grace becomes cheap and the cross is devalued. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Now, um, in the context of of anger, um, okay, no, just rewind a little bit. I've rewritten the sermon four times. (laughs) It's really hard to talk about, like something that's very convicting, um, but without sounding like doomy and gloomy, but actually I do fundamentally believe that we need to understand that we need a savior before we go on to the grace part. and actually, um, when I was worshiping just, just earlier, I felt like God was stirring me um, to just change a few little bits um, again. Um, but I just want to like, share a quick testimony, if that's all right. Um, so in terms of anger, in the context of anger, um, I have massively struggled with this, like hugely. Um, and in particular, uh, I have massively struggled with anger towards men. Um, and that's because... Uh, uh, in my life, I, I left home very, very young. I was 17. I moved to London um, uh, on my own, and well, I, I lived with my aunt for a year, and then when I was 18, I, I moved out. But um, I was pretty much alone in the big bad world, or at least I felt that way um, when I was uh, quite young, and I was very vulnerable, and a lot of quite horrible stuff happened to me at the hands of various different men, some of them employers, um, and as a result of that, I grew very, very hard and very, very bitter, and I. In my heart, I, I despised men, and I, I really honestly thought that just men were animals and that women who didn't believe that um, were just naive and stupid. Um, and God, and I was a Christian, I went to church, I praised the Lord, I loved God, um, but I really, really, really hated men. And I believed that that hatred was justified um, because I had that kind of victim mentality, you know, and I I wore it almost like a badge of honor, you know, like I had this cloak of victimhood that um, I felt that if 
I forgave men or stopped hating men in general, then, um, then I would be saying that what had happened to me was okay. Um, and so I managed to maintain my so-called Christianity while also holding on to this very extreme anger. Um, and at the end of the day, I'd say that that was really a poison to me more than anyone else. And God was amazing. God, at the church I was in at the time, um, God just put some brother, like spiritual brothers in my life who I was awful to, and they just loved me anyway. Like, I remember this one guy, like we were at, um, we had like a church, like a, like a kind of, I think it must have been a Christmas party or something, and I went very, very late. And um, one guy offered to walk me home because it was so late, and I just blew up at him. I mean, I'd had a bit drink. Um, but I was furious and I genuinely was like accusing him of like trying to rape me and like trying all this stuff and he was literally just being nice and trying to you know walk me home. Um, but I just had so much anger that I couldn't even see a good intention in, in, in a man like that's how bad the anger was and that's how like poisoned um, my heart was. Um, and honestly like it's been a really big journey but a f a God convicted me through a friend um, to go through this kind of forgiveness um, ministry um, called Sozo, um, and uh, it, it completely set me free, like, in all honesty. And I'll say, I was a magnet to toxic men, <laughs> um, and it was like something in the supernatural just broke, because I've just not been a magnet like that um, since. Um, but also then God made me go into a men's prison. Um, some of whom were rapists, and like, I genuinely love them all. Like, they're my brothers. I was, I was talking to um, another uh, guy friend who, who was also part of that ministry team when we came out, and I was literally like, I couldn't figure out what that sick feeling in my stomach was. And, and we prayed together and realized that it was homesickness for the prison. <laughs> and I think it's just because we, we encountered God's kingdom there, and we encountered God's grace there, and God just, broke my heart for these guys, and I, I genuinely love them so much. I'm praying for them every day. I'm dreaming about them. They're my brothers, and I'm fighting and interceding for them in the spirit like every day because I just love them so much. But that's only because God broke that. Now, if anyone's feeling convicted, I must assure you that conviction is not the same as condemnation. Condemnation is implying that you're inherently bad. So if you're having, you know, some things are coming up in you, don't, don't be condemned. Be convicted, um, but don't, don't receive condemnation. Um, condemnation comes from the enemy. It says in the Bible that the enemy is an accuser, um, and, and condemnation uh, pretty much says that you're not of any value, um, and, and we know that that's a lie. And God made us in his image, right? We know that uh, sorry, condemnation does not come from Jesus because Jesus himself says that um, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's John 3:17. We always know the bit before that. <laughs> so don't feel condemned, but do feel convicted. When we're feeling convicted, what's happening is God is saying to you, I want you to live in this higher standard of righteousness because of your inherent value as my child. I want you to be free from this because of how much I love you. Jesus said what he said for our benefit. Anger is not good for us. 
And honestly, I think this passage is actually more relevant today than ever before. There are now people out there who are literally making small businesses who are capitalizing on us being angry. Did you know that? News platforms in particular, both amateur and professional, have caught on to the fact that provocative headlines get more clicks. More clicks equals more money. Um, only this week I stumbled across, uh, I listened to podcasts, and I st uh, stumbled across a podcast in the New York Times, and they were interviewing some far-right um, amateur journalists, um, uh, including a husband and wife who had started up this uh, news-slash-conspiracy-theory uh, website. And they literally just make stuff up and call it news. And they'd write articles about how like, Obama's really like a Muslim terrorist, and like, they've got all of this kind of end of the world doom and gloom stuff. And they, uh, the wife was a nurse, and the husband was a uh, builder, and they ended up quitting their day jobs because they were just making so much money out of this conspiracy site, um, out of the ad revenue that was being generated from all the clicks. Um, and this is, what, this is a quote, this is what the husband said in the interview. He says, I'd love to write nothing but good news all day, but I think people aren't really honest about what they like and don't like. They want to hear the gossip, the bad news. If you can make a good story sound like a bad story, you've got yourself a viral story. If you can make a good story sound like a bad story, you've got yourself a viral story. These guys realize that the most consistent way to get people to click on a story is to make them angry. So there are now people out there with a vested interest in making us outraged. These guys then made a conscious decision during the election period in 2006 um, to dial up the anger, and their ad revenue went through the roof, and they became millionaires. People are making money out of our anger. <laughs> I, I also, um, when preparing for this, I read a, an article in an academic journal um, called The Effects of Anger on the Brain and Body. And essentially, it says, what the Bible's been saying for 2,000 years, anger's really bad for you. <laughs> Science is just starting to catch up with the word of God. Essentially what happens is when a person experiences anger, the brain releases chemicals throughout the body, and these chemicals are stress hormones, um, and that affects all of the body. And as a result, people who are constantly angry have a higher risk of suffering heart attack or stroke. Uh, in a review of findings based on 44 studies published in 2009 in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, evidence was found that supports the connection between anger and hostility being significantly associated with heart disease. So, is Jesus being pedantic? I think not. I think he's saying this for our benefit. We do need to be careful. Jesus shows us that his way is higher than any of our self-made kind of right, uh, yeah, self-made righteousness. His way is better than our kind of, yeah, I got angry, but hey, I didn't kill him. He's giving us a higher standard of living. But as we've seen, we can't do it without him. The good news here is that there's grace. And the grace of God doesn't just challenge, it transforms us. If you get offended when you're hearing godly challenge, then I'll, I just want to suggest that rest in his grace. Because his grace isn't something that just convicts us, although conviction is good. His grace then gives us the ability to be transformed. 
So please don't hear any of what I've said tonight as like a, you need to stop being angry. I get angry. <laughs> also, massive side note, Jesus got angry. <laughs> you read that in the Bible? He turned over the tables and made a whip. Scholars uh, distinguish that though from what he's saying here because that was what's called righteous anger because he was angry with a justice issue or injustice, I should say. Um, whereas what he's talking about specifically here is obviously um, being angry with specific people. Conviction does not equal condemnation. When we feel convicted hearing God's word, let's not think that he's saying that you know, you are inherently evil and that you're not of any value. Remember, we're made in his image. We are so valuable that he came to die for us. 